Today our lesson deals with Ezekiel's prophetic vision of the temple and the river that flows out of its porch. But the temple of Ezekiel differed in important ways from the temple of Jerusalem. These differences are symbols of the lessons God wanted to teach Ezekiel and the people of Israel, just as the temple was a symbol of the relationship of God to his people. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back to Gospel Doctrine. Today's lesson 44, Everything Shall Live, Whither the River Cometh. This is a quote from uh, Ezekiel chapter 47, but we will be studying also uh, Ezekiel's earlier vision of the temple itself, 43 and 44, and chapter 47. So it's uh, largely taken up by this vision of Ezekiel being transported back to a city that resembles Jerusalem in a lot of respects, but is never called Jerusalem. So, as always, uh, if, you, if you'd like to comment on today's lesson, a past lesson, or ask questions about a future lesson, email me at gt at So, Ezekiel is, uh, again, this is, he's still in Babylon, and this is the accounting of a vision that he has. This is years after the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. So, if you remember in uh, chapter 33 of Ezekiel, he receives word that the city has been destroyed, the Babylonians have finally succeeded in their siege, all the Israelites have been either killed or taken captive, and the ones that are left are the poor and destitute that are paying heavy tribute to the Babylonians. And years later, Ezekiel, far away in Babylon, in exile, he has this vision. Now, uh, there are some... uh, I want to call them speculations, but it's actually uh, pretty pretty good indication. The first thing that Ezekiel says is the date. He says exactly what day and what year it is. And if you do the map, we'll we'll talk a little bit about the map, but not very much. Um, It's not exactly clear just from reading uh, chapter 43, why why Ezekiel would be talking about what day it is when he has this vision. Well, the, the year... He tells us the year, and the year is what's called a jubilee year. So the, the Jews would have seven years of, or six normal years, and then just as they had six normal days, and the seventh day was Sabbath, they would have six normal years, and then they, would, they were called upon in the law of Moses to have a Sabbath year. But something special happened with years. Once there were seven Sabbath year cycles, then the 50th year... So that would be 49 normal years, and then the 50th year would be what was called a Jubilee year. And this year was a Sabbath of Sabbaths. It was the holiest year. So uh, some historians have gone back and figured out this was a Jubilee year that he was talking about. And according to the custom of the time, the way they kept their calendar, the Jubilee year was calculated a little differently. He's actually describing his vision on the Day of Atonement, what's known as Yom Kippur, Uh, on the Jubilee year. In other words, Ezekiel is having this vision of a holy city, of a a prophetic vision of a temple that doesn't exist anymore, on the holiest day that would occur for 50 years in either direction. So the, you, you might think as you're reading this, why is he talking to us about dates? That's the reason, is because this is the this is the year in which the, or the day, the very day in which the high priest would have normally taken the 
sacrificial animals and entered into the the one day of the year when he would have entered into the Holy of Holies. And we'll talk a lot about what that means and and why that's important. And uh, Ezekiel was taken, it's worthy of noting, Ezekiel was taken captive before he ever got to serve in the temple, but he would have been one of the priests that was serving in the temple. So he had never, he was not called as a high priest, but the, the fact that he was such an important prophet leads us to believe that perhaps he would have risen to that post and been the one to uh, represent the people before the Lord. And in any case, um, Ezekiel is transported to Jerusalem, as he had been. Uh, in our last lesson, we talked about uh, Ezekiel witnessing. He was, he was taken on this uh, visual vi- vision tour of the temple, and he was summoned to the temple in spirit, and he witnessed the glory of God departing the temple through the east gate and heading off toward Babylon. In other words, the, the glory of God, the presence of God, the Shekinah, no longer resided in the temple and was going to accompany the Jewish people into exile. And in this prophetic vision, Ezekiel sees the reconstruction of a temple that is that resembles in many respects the Temple of Solomon that was now destroyed. However, uh, there are also some important differences. And and rather than go into each one, I think it I think they could all be summed up by saying that the separation between holy and profane was more meticulously maintained in this in this prophetic temple of Ezekiel. So. Uh, let's talk about what different temples there were in Old Testament and New Testament history. First of all, there was the Temple of Moses, which was the tabernacle, right? This this moving temple. And that temple existed in various places, and it was the temple all the way up through the prophet Samuel, all the all the reign of the judges, the prophet Samuel, and the and King David, and eventually Solomon built the first permanent residence of the Lord, which was the Temple of Solomon. Uh, when the Jews return from exile, they're, they're allowed to reconstruct the temple. And an heir of David's line is found. His name is Zerubbabel. And the prophet at that time was Ezra. We're going to talk about Ezra in a couple of weeks. But um, So this is called either the Temple of Ezra or, uh, more commonly, the Temple of Zerubbabel. Now, this temple also had, was conquered and damaged, not completely destroyed, but um, profaned and renewed throughout the, the few centuries that followed. And then a few years before Christ was born, King Herod, in order to gain favor with the Jews, not out of any religious feeling, uh, rebuilt the temple, expanded it, made it more glorious than it had been before. And that was called the Temple of Herod. So the Temple of Solomon is called the first temple, and the Temple of Herod is called the second temple. And some people, there are differing of of opinions on whether that second temple began with Zerubbabel or began with Herod. So, and then apart from either of those is the temple of Ezekiel. So this temple, although it resembles the the layout of the temple, the layout of the grounds, resembles the temple of of Solomon, there are some differences. And the, the differences are in how exact all of the measurements were, where the gates were, uh, all of the prescribed behavior that existed, when you would get dressed and put on your temple clothing as you went into to past the part where you were uh, measured for your worthiness to enter, 
right? And so all of these things existed in the ancient in the temple of Ezekiel. And the the point for me was Ezekiel sees a day when the the people are more willing to obey with exactness God's priorities about his temple. They understand the need that everything that goes into the sacred space of the temple be set apart. Now, if you remember, we talked about the word holy when we uh, are in our first lesson of Isaiah. Isaiah is summoned to the temple, and, and there are these, um, these seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And the word they're using is kadosh. And kadosh is a word meaning set apart. So set, holy does not just mean something that is of God. It can mean anything. Obviously, that's sort of the capital letter meaning of holy, but it can mean anything that's set apart for a specific purpose. And the temple was holy, set apart for the worship of God. And as you read chapters 43, 44, and even if you were to continue 45 and 46, which aren't part of the lesson, you would see how exact all of these measurements are that, that the angel that is giving Ezekiel this tour of, the, uh, of Ezekiel's temple how exacting all these measurements are, you would see that it's very important when something is kadosh, that it is preserved and set apart, that the the space that is designed as sacred or holy is treated as such and respected, and those boundaries are respected. And the main reason for that, the surface reason for that is sort of obvious. Uh, in, in If you're following along, we're in Ezekiel chapter 43. In verse 7, uh, the angel tells Ezekiel that the Lord, that Yahweh wants to dwell in the temple. In other words, he wants to make it his home. So it's the place of the Lord's throne. It's And uh, God even tells Ezekiel, it's the place of the soles of my feet. So I'm going to touch the ground here where I wouldn't normally, obvious, the implications, I wouldn't normally do this. I, I don't walk everywhere because the the ground that I'm going to set my feet on has to be set apart and consecrated. It's also a place where the Jews would learn about the law. If you remember the the famous uh, Isaiah chapter 2, the word of the Lord will go forth from from Zion and, and the law from Jerusalem. So, or, or maybe it's the other way around, but the, the temple was the place, the mountain of the Lord's house was the place where ordinances would be performed, where the word of God would be first received. And it is a it is a place set apart for the dwelling of God. We'll talk a little bit more about that as well. So some of the sources that I'll be using in today's lesson are uh, Ben Spackman's blog. I've mentioned it before. It's called Benjamin the Scribe. Also, uh, Tim Mackey's wonderful podcast, uh, My Exploring My Strange Bible. He has an episode on the temple, and his insights are shockingly insightful for someone who has never been a Latter-day Saint, who doesn't have an understanding of the restored Church of Jesus Christ doctrine around what a temple means and what it is. So I found that very helpful. This particular quote is taken from the Faith Life Study Bible. And this is kind of what I've been getting at is Ezekiel is taken through an idealized temple. And so the the difference, the distinction between sacred and profane, clean and unclean is perfectly maintained and more strictly than with previous iterations of the temple. So there are a couple of events that occur in this vision as well. It's not just a tour. One of the things that happens, as I mentioned, is that the glory of God returns. And Ezekiel is sort of the beginning of, of a, a tendency or a tradition 
of referring less and less frequently to the actual presence of God. So when Ezekiel describes his initial vision, he says, I saw an image of the likeness of the glory of God rather than I saw God on his throne, as, as Isaiah reported. But it seems to be much the same kind of a vision. And by the time, uh, by Jesus's time, so this is, this is a new thing sort of in the age of exile, and by Jesus's time, uh, Jews can be executed for even saying the word Yahweh, which, and they, and they don't write it anymore in their scriptures, which wasn't the case in Old Testament times. So it's an interesting begin, or it's an, a beginning to an interesting shift. And he describes it the same way. He says, I saw the glory of God returning to the temple. Now in ancient Near Eastern cultures, when the temple, when, when any God, it was understood that if a God is not in his temple, then there's some sort of emergency. God has abandoned the people, his worshipers. And so the symbolic leaving, abandoning of his temple in Ezekiel's earlier vision was, was an emergency. It showed that the people had been worshiping him incorrectly, had uh, turned that relationship of, between them and God into a lie. And that's why he had to leave. And then when he returned, he returned through the East Gate. Now, this is significant because then uh, in the vision, the East Gate is shut up because God has come through it. And no one can use that East Gate except for God himself. Um, And so it's significant to note when Jesus Christ had made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that is the gate that he chose was the Eastern Gate, what is today called the Golden Gate, although it's... um, it's generally considered to be directly above the gate that existed at the time of Jesus. So if you look at a picture of, usually taken from the Mount of Olives, if you look at a picture of the old city of Jerusalem, you'll see the Dome of the Rock, which is pretty close to the place where the Temple of Solomon stood. Uh, And then in front of that, you'll see this gate that's sealed up. And below that gate, buried in the ground, is the, are the, presumably, are the walls of the ancient temple and and the... uh, the original gate, and there are actually uh, the although the Jews control the the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, uh, the Muslim authority controls the Temple Mount itself, and so there are armed Muslim guards on the inside, and their their charge and that and they guard that gate specifically, and their charge is to prevent the Messiah from entering in. Uh, it's an interesting side note. So. The Ezekiel witnesses the glory of God returning to the temple, sealing that gate up. And then uh, in chapter 47, this is kind of where we're going with this lesson and what we're going to talk about. We see, the, or he sees a, a river sprout out, and it's just a little stream sprouts out from the, the south end of the porch that's on the east side of the temple. The temple faces east into the rising sun. And this, and the, this little stream flows out, and then Ezekiel traces the stream downwards until he can walk across and it's up to his ankles. And he walks across it four times, and the second time it's to his knees, and the third time it's to his waist. And finally, he tries to walk across and he can't. He has to swim. So that this is a potent, this is very potent imagery and uh, laden with meaning. We're going to talk about what it all means. Um, but we got to get, before we can do all that, we've got to get a little bit of background on what a temple is. Now, normally I don't um, I, I, I like to spend time talking about what the prophets and what the ancient scriptural writers meant by what they were saying, their original meaning to their original audience, not what we can take from the lesson, because I feel like you, 
my listeners, you are perfectly capable of taking your own interpretations and giving ancient scriptures a modern meaning. Uh, And that's kind of the whole point. I, I try to give you all the tools that you need in order to get as much meaning as you can. But in this lesson, the uh, the temple itself, this this is an idealized temple. And so it's sort of the whole point that we would consider what does the temple mean? And that the answers to that question have almost exclusively modern significance. So this lesson is going to be going to seem like I'm tearing it right out of the pages of the headlines, so to speak, spiritually speaking, because um, we're going to talk a lot about what the temple means in our own lives, because that is the very thing that Ezekiel was trying to get across to his readers, even though they were in Babylon, even though they didn't have a temple. So I've set the stage a little bit. We've We've talked about what it means to be holy. We've talked about the fact that it's set apart. Now, the temple was a representation for the Jews. It was a representation, as were so many things, of the original creation. The, the Jews put great importance on the Sabbath day. And, if, and in fact, when they were separated from the temple, they were so distraught by this, their faith had been so centered around it, that they had to find a substitute for it. And they chose the Sabbath day. That was the thing that they began to focus on as opposed to temple worship as the center of their faith. And they had to have something that was set apart as sacred. But both of these ideas have reference to the creation. And for, for the ancient Israelites, everything that was where everything revolved around. So if you remember from the creation of the world, just after that, it talks about the creation of the Garden of Eden. And in that garden, the garden was a fertile place where God could freely visit, and he often did. He would visit Adam and Eve and talk with them and teach them. And there was a river, a stream, actually, that flew, that flowed through the uh, garden and watered the garden, made it fertile, and then the river actually expanded into four rivers, or this, this stream, this little stream expanded into four rivers. The, the Garden of Eden was a place that was set apart. It was shared space between God and man. Adam and Eve lived there, but so did God. God was happy to visit, and it was a place for the soles of his feet, as he tells Ezekiel about the temple. Well, obviously, God's plan, according to what we understand of the ancient Israelites' understanding of the fall, uh, God's plan was messed up, and and man was ejected from God's presence. Uh, And whether that was intentional on God's part or not is actually not that important in our understanding of whether it's shared space. So the Garden of Eden is shared space between God and man, and the temple, first the tabernacle of Moses, but then later the temple of Solomon and every temple that was constructed in Jerusalem, was uh, an attempt at recreating the idea of the garden, recreating the shared space between God and man. So that was why inside the temple there were depicted all of these scenes from a a lush garden sort of landscape palm trees, and then what one thing that God said as he, uh, as he ejected Adam and Eve from the garden was, let's put cherubim, or guardian angels, and a flaming sword between Adam and Eve and the tree of life. In other words, they cannot return to this shared space without my authorization. 
So these, these images were depicted also on the veil of the temple and on the walls of the temple. And their symbol is there. Um, we had a, we had a special episode not too long ago about the tabernacle of Moses. And you can find out more about, um, the furniture you might call it, or the furnishings inside of the, what's called the holy place, the first room of the temple. But the point is these, these images have meaning that is generally understood to refer to the garden of Eden and the creation. Well, what, what's the point of all that on the day of atonement, which is the day that Ezekiel is having this vision what the priest would do is he would take two goats and a bullock or a, a, a young cow, and he would sacrifice one of the goats for the sins of the people of Israel or, or for Israel itself. And then he would take the other goat and he would place his hands on it. And he would impart to that goat symbolically all of the sins of the entire nation. And then they would drive it out into the wilderness. And incidentally, this is where the word scapegoat comes from. So the scapegoat was seen as carrying the guilt of all the people, and then it would be driven away. And then Ezekiel would sacrifice the other two, an- or not Ezekiel, the, the high priest, whoever it might be, would, it would sacrifice the other two animals. And then one by one, he would carry the blood into the temple, through the first veil, into the holy place. And then through the second veil, the, the, the veil that only the high priest himself could enter only once per year, and, or on one day of the year. And with that blood, he would sprinkle some of it on the Ark of the Covenant, and he would sprinkle some of it in front of it, and this would cleanse the Ark of the Covenant because it dwelt amid an impure people. And then it would cleanse the temple, and then the, the other he would go back and get the blood of the other animal and bring it in, and he would sprinkle that, and that would cleanse the people. Now, it's interesting to note, we talk a lot about, um, in when we're explaining, if you've ever worked with youth in the church, when you teach them about what it means to have a proxy sacrifice, um, one of the one of the first examples given is, well, you know, a proxy sacrifice isn't actually that foreign to us because think about the atonement. Jesus suffered for all of us. He was in our place. Um, and that's that's an interesting illustration. But actually, uh, there was a There was a precursor to proxy sacrifice long before Jesus lived, and that was all of these sacrifices that existed on the temple. They were proxy sacrifices where the animals were the proxies for the Israelites. And generally they were either discharging some sin or some impurity by bringing a sacrifice before God or expressing their, their gratitude. And especially on the Day of Atonement, these sacrifices represented everyone. And so it was the holiest day of the year. Nobody worked. Nobody ate anything. They fasted for 24 hours. And the, if, you, if you consider the symbolism of the, the rooms of the temple, so the high priest would travel from the, from the uh, altar of the temple, which is already sort of a holy place. First he would, well, and if you consider his, his journey from the time when he was outside of the temple, first he had to put on his temple clothing, go into the outer court and perform the sacrifice, and then travel past the brazen sea or the molten sea, that what was a, a large basin, and then walk through the veil to the holy place and then walk through another veil into the most holy place or the holy of holies. This was a journey that was considered to be reversing the effects of the fall. Or in other words, a new creation. And if that phrase jogs your memory of what we've been talking about the last few weeks, it should. Because 
through all the prophets, around about the time of King David, God started talking about a new creation because the Israel was getting so wicked that their eventual exile was becoming more and more inevitable. And so God began through his prophets to prophesy this new creation where he would do a new thing. And uh, we're going to talk a lot about that today because it's very tied into what the temple means. So the priest arrives in the Holy of Holies, and he's at this point, he's completely reversed the effects of the fall. He has traveled not only from the telestial king, not only from a place of death where he's separated from God's presence, but into the telestial world where he's outside of the temple through the terrestrial world and into the celestial uh, aura of the, in the direct in direct experience with the glory of God. And this was a this was the and if you think about what Adam and Eve did when they left the garden, they traveled over this river, they uh, had the guardians put behind them, and then they traveled from the presence of God out of that, out of the garden, which is a terrestrial uh, existence, over this body of water, past the sentinels, and then into the lone and dreary world. And then the Israelites went one step further, which was once they were in the land that God had promised them, they were taken into exile. And so the the fall does not just mean the fall from God's presence, the Garden of Eden, into the into the telestial world, but also into hell itself, because we all have to die. And when the priest returns on the Day of Atonement into the into the Holy of Holies, he reverses this process. Now, all of the all none of these things actually saved the children of Israel. It was just a symbol. It was meant to teach them. This is what God wants to do with you. He wants to bring you back into his presence. But the temple doesn't perform that function. This is what Jeremiah was trying to get across. He came, his big lesson, if you remember just a couple of weeks ago, he he came to the temple mount and he said, you're all saying a temple, a temple, as if the temple's going to save you. If you think the temple itself is enough to protect you when God has sent an army to destroy you, all you have to do is go look at Shiloh. It's 20 miles away. And the Assyrians utterly destroyed it. And that's where the temple used to be. So if you think this place is any different, you're wrong. You got another thing coming. What can happen to Shiloh can happen to Jerusalem. And eventually we know that it did. So the temple is not what saves them. What saves them is the, number one, the relationship that is symbolized by the temple, which is this journey from hell through the world we live in today back into a a state where man is in harmony with God, where man is was able to share space with God. And that's what the temple represents. So now let's get into the meat of what that is. In order to do this, we're going to have to now go into the New Testament. I think this, this lesson is a wonderful transition into what we'll be studying in just a few short weeks, uh, the New Testament. So if you open up the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 1, the idea that the Jews cared about the, or the, the lessons of the Jews, the, their theology was centered around the creation, is reinforced all over the place, and especially here in the, in the Gospel of John. So John takes Genesis language, and it's very consciously done, and he says, in the beginning, which is, which is the same exact words that Genesis begins with. So the Old Testament begins with in the beginning, and John, uh, John wants to begin his gospel with in the beginning. So in the beginning, the word was with God. He talks all about the word. 
And it's obvious before too long that he's, because we're Christians, it's obvious he's talking about Jesus Christ. But to people who who were maybe just hearing about Christ or didn't know much of the theology of who Christ was, uh, but they were Jews, this was quite uh, potent imagery. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's saying there is a, there is a being who has a relationship with God whose relationship is symbolized by a word spoken by God. And so is, is Jesus the word? Is the word God or it was the word with God, right? He's leaving that ambiguous on purpose. And in other, and he's, he's talking about the creation. He says the word created everything that was made and without him was not anything made that was made. The word made everything that was made. And then without going into too many details about the fall, John says, and the word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. So right away, we find that just as, just as Adam and Eve had shared space with God, this is what Jesus does for all of us. So the, the Garden of Eden and the, the Temple of Jerusalem, both the symbols of the shared space of God. Jesus is also now in this in this chapter we we can see him as maybe a symbol of that shared space with God. But what we come to realize as we read on is that Jesus is not a symbol at all. He is the reality to which all other symbols point. So the garden of Eden, the shared space, this this holy space that's set apart for God and man to be united in harmony. The temple, this place that represents man traveling back through the fall, into God's presence as he once was. This, this building that represents the pursuit of God, he's, his loving kindness towards man, the pursuit of God for man and, and begging him to come back. Those symbols are actually just lessons to point us to the reality that is Christ. And that is John's point here. He's saying he made his dwelling among men and he is God that Jesus himself is sacred space. He is the shared space. He is the unite, the, the unity of God and man, the perfect harmony between heaven and earth. And part of the proof of that idea is the fact that he made his dwelling among us. So when you, when you create a dwelling, what do you put up? You put up walls. You put up walls that say, this is my house. It's set apart. In other words, a dwelling, the, the meaning of dwelling is a sacred space. And sacred means nothing more than something that's set apart in its most generic meaning. And so when, when John says that he set up, he made his dwelling among men, what he means is he set up a division of what was holy and what was not. And where Christ was, was always within this sacred space that was set apart for the relationship between God and man where there was unity, where there was reconciliation. The entire chapter is a description of the creator God, entering into and becoming part of his creation. Now, it's interesting because almost right away, in John at least, Jesus comes into conflict or into uh, confrontation with what the temple means. So in chapter 2 of John, Jesus immediately, right at the beginning of his ministry, one of his first acts and one of his last, incidentally, there were two cleansing of, cleansings of the temple. But Jesus comes into the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers. And we'll go into what this means um, in a few weeks, obviously. But in, in the short version is that the money changers were controlled by the high priest. They had ecclesiastical authority over the temple, and they saw an opportunity to make extra money. 
And there was a particular kind of coin that was only accepted in the temple. And in order to have that coin, you had to go through these money changers. So you take your normal money, change it for temple money, and then, because your normal money was unclean, and then you could buy a sacrificial animal and have it sacrificed in the temple. So people had their ecclesiastical duties, their scriptural obligations that they had to fulfill, and the priests were profiting from this. Jesus was so disgusted by this practice, and he was also disgusted by the relationship of the the Jewish people to God, that he went into the temple, and just like Jeremiah before him, who'd said, you think the temple's going to protect you? It's your relationship with God that matters, and that's in danger. And this is what Jesus was demonstrating. He came into the temple and you, ha- you have to understand what a provocative act this was. Everyone would have seen it as an attack on, on all that they held dear, right? They, the fact that their relationship with God wasn't where it should be did not occur to them at that time. What they saw was a man uh, attacking one of their precious symbols, precious symbols of their um, specialness, right? The, the Jews were a chosen people, and this was the symbol, the, the temple in Jerusalem, was their symbol of how, of how chosen they were, and Jesus attacked that thing. And so, uh, logically, the those that were watching this, the people who were the priests, they number one, they knew their guilt, and so they didn't immediately lay hands on him. They thought, oh, well, you know, he knows what we're doing here, and he sees that it's wrong. But they questioned him. They said, with what authority do you come in here? And uh, so now we're in John chapter 2, um, verses 13 to 21. With what authority do you come in here and turn over these all these tables? And Jesus, at first it appears like he doesn't answer the question. He says, if you tear down this temple in three days, I'll raise it again. And you can imagine them looking at each other and, and saying, what? What? This temple took 46 years to build. I mean, Herod spent the bulk of his wealth in order to gain the favor, they wouldn't have put it this way, but in order to gain the favor of the Jewish people and their loyalty, he spent the bulk of his wealth for a long time uh, rebuilding this temple. You're going to build it again in three days? What is that? And and then John comes in editorially and says, but they didn't know that he spoke of the temple of his body. So here's John explicitly saying Jesus was the temple. But also Jesus, Jesus himself was saying, if you were to take down the temple, the relationship, the place where God and man meet, if you were to tear it down, then I can put it back together in three days. And it gives us a little bit of an indication as to why Jesus had to die for our sins. Because the this high priest journey on the Day of Atonement is not just from life to living with God again. It's from death. It's from hell. It's from exile. If you look at the uh, if you look at the journey of the Jewish people, they weren't just cast out of the garden. They were then taken from their homes into exile. And so, man, and if you're beginning to spot some echoes of our antecedents of Isaiah, then good for you because this is this is how you know that the temple and Christ and all of our own individual lives and the people of Israel, they're all intertwined. It's all the same story. And this is very much on purpose. God wants all of these things to point to Christ. He wants them to teach the lesson that God is pursuing us, that once he kicked us, once he kicked men out of the garden, that he wanted to bring them back into his presence. And Christ is the mechanism that all these symbols, that, that the temple and that the 
restoration of the Jew, the gathering of the Jews, and what our own repentance are only symbols of. Christ is the is the power that drives all of those things. Christ is the reality behind all of those symbols. So we got to get one more idea from the Gospel of John before we move on, and that is Jesus's statement that I will send to his disciples in the Last Supper. I will send another comforter unto you, and he will dwell within you. So this word dwell is sort of a, a little key that we can use to look at it. When God says he, he's going to dwell somewhere, right, and the, the comforter is part of God, the Holy Ghost is one of the Godhead, this idea that the comforter is going to dwell in you is Jesus giving his disciples a clue. Not only am I the temple, but when you make a covenant with me, you become part of me, and therefore you too are the temple. So this is just hinted at in John, but but let's get to where uh, we start to learn this more explicitly. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul starts to make this same point. There are a couple of uh, epistles where he does this. One is uh, 1 Corinthians and one is Ephesians. So uh, in 1 Corinthians, you if you don't know what the point is of the letter to the Corinthians, um, Paul is trying to call this new church, the Corinthian church, into to repentance because they're in this place where it's almost like a, uh, it's almost like sin city. Corinth is a place where people come for sin tourism. And it was, it was well known. In fact, saying somebody was Corinthian was much the same as saying they were a hedonist. It didn't really have to do with where they came from. If you are, were acting in a Corinthian way, it meant that you were Uh, seeking the pleasures of the flesh. It was the home to a a lot of fertility cults, and part of worship of a fertility cult is a practice of sex with with sex workers that were hired by a temple in order to uh, conduct these exercises that that were thought or at least hoped to bring the the notice of a fertility goddess who would would then bless the land with with increase in the crops or, or rain. And it didn't hurt that everyone really liked to enjoy, uh, engage in this activity, right? And that was the problem, was that Paul had spent a couple of years, two and a half years or so, establishing a church in Corinth. And then the people had taken his teachings, like when once, once Christ is alive in you, then you are dead to sin. They'd taken this teaching to mean, oh, well, if I'm dead to sin, then sin has no more power over me, then I can, I can go back and in, engage in these fertility rites, and uh, I'm good, I've been saved. And so the a main part of the letter of to the Corinthians was to tell to teach the people, no, that's not exactly how it works. And in fact, you all already know this. You just you were just hiding this from yourselves. And he's and it's so interesting because you can tell by the way Paul explains what they're doing wrong that everybody that reads his letter understood the temple. And so he uses the temple they all understood the temple as the sacred space between God and man. And so Paul uses it as an example to say, don't you understand you're the temple? When you joined yourself to Christ, you became part of him and he is the temple. You all are sacred space now. Is it right for you to, and so the, the, each of you is one of the members of the body of Christ. You're, you're his limbs, you're his hands and feet and fingers. And he explores that idea later in chapter 13, but right now we're in chapter uh, 3. And he says, you are God's building, you're God's temple, the Spirit's dwelling in you. And then in chapter 6, he says, your bodies are part of the body 
of Christ. Am I going to take the body of Christ and join it with a prost- the body of a prostitute? And as we know from Genesis, again, the, the act of sexual union is making two people one flesh. And Paul is very much on board with this idea. And he's saying, when you, when you engage in these fertility rites, what you're doing is you're joining the body of Christ, this sacred space, with the body of a prostitute. Is that appropriate? Of course it isn't. And so you're in the same position as all of the Israelites who, who thought that they were protected by a temple. You're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian now. So the symbol is in place, and I can neglect, I can utterly neglect the reality, which is my own personal righteousness, the journey that I'm actually personally going on that reverses the effects of the fall. Because there's a building in Jerusalem that represents the chosenness of God's people, therefore, I don't have to worry about my own choices. I can totally escape all of the consequences for those choices because God has already saved me. This idea was prevalent in ancient Israel, as it was prevalent in the time of Jesus's disciples. And this is Paul shooting that idea down and saying, here's an example of the temple. I want you to take your understanding of the temple and apply that so that you can understand why sexual promiscuity is immoral. An interesting thing, because today that, that idea would be, the necessity for that idea would be reversed. Everybody would understand sexual promiscuity is immoral, and therefore, uh, here's how the temple works. But in Paul's day, it was the exact opposite. They were, they were rationalizing their sexual promiscuity, that it was just fine because uh, Christ had saved them. And Paul was explaining why it wasn't just fine because they understood the temple. And he does that again in Ephesians. But in this case, it's because people were, uh, they were objecting or they were making divisions among themselves. Some people came to Christianity through Judaism and they had the understanding, they they had the belief in all of the ancient prophets and in all the scriptures, and they'd been circumcised, been circumcised, and and been perhaps even uh, had sacrifices performed on their behalf. They'd been observant Jews, and they felt like their their path into Christianity was somehow more valid. And then people who were converted directly to Christianity without ha- ever having been Jews were being excluded and were called strangers, as they were in Judaism. They were known as strangers until they converted to Judaism. And Paul was saying, the strangers among you are not strangers. None of you are strangers. You're all, you're all part of this building of God. You're all fitly framed together. Everyone is part of God's temple. So in one case, Paul uses the, the example of the temple to say, you each individually are, because you, because you made a covenant with Christ, you're all individually the temple, and the Spirit is going to dwell in you. Just as God's presence, just as God's glory would inhabit the ancient temple that we have, we have the account of in the book of Kings where uh, the Shekinah descends from heaven and their smoke fills the, the temple of Solomon for, for seven days. And, uh, then that, and they know that God dwells there. Uh, you are the same way. The Spirit of God lives in you just like the presence of God lives in the temple. And therefore, you individually have to watch your behavior. This is Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 saying, uh, you collectively are the temple of God as well. And there's no room for division of you, uh, among you, just like there's no room for one half of the temple to be divided from the other. Does that even make any sense? You are all sacred space. And Christ, you're all united in Christ. You've all made a covenant to follow Christ. So it doesn't matter whether you follow one of the teachers um, or or one of the one of the apostles or one of the apostles' disciples, there shouldn't be any factions because 
everybody is united under Christ and nobody can take glory unto themselves. So these are this is actually Paul using the underst- the understanding that was universal about what the temple meant to illustrate two very important conte- con- concepts, that of sexual purity and that of unity among believers. So now that we've gotten some, some background on what the temple means, let's talk, let's go back now to Ezekiel chapter 47 and talk about what this river means. So Ezekiel has first the vision of a temple one day being rebuilt and more perfect than ever before. And then out of this temple comes this river. Now, you've already got one clue to what the meaning of this river is by the fact that there was this river flowing out of the Garden of Eden, or a stream, I should say, flowing out of the Garden of Eden and became four rivers. So the first thing we notice about this river of Ezekiel is that it's a small stream. And rivers have a way of growing, right? That's what naturally happens. But they grow through tributaries joining them. They don't grow by themselves. You don't have a single stream just becoming spontaneously a deep river. So that's the first strange thing, and we wonder about what it means. And then the second strange thing is that, it, well, I guess maybe the first strange thing, it comes from nowhere, right? This blessing flows from the temple, but there isn't really a source of water anywhere. It flows year-round. So we notice that this, this year-round flowing stream is going to turn into a deep river. And then the third thing is that everywhere that the title of our lesson, everything shall live, whither the river cometh. So the, the river is a source of abundant life. In fact, it, it flows into the desert east of Jerusalem. Now, this is where it starts to get tied to concrete geography. Jerusalem is on a hill, and east of Jerusalem is the valley that leads eventually to the Dead Sea. So it, the implication is very strong that this is Jerusalem where this river is flowing from. But before this point, this is sort of a, an abstract idea of a temple instead of a specific place for a temple. And that's important because this prophetic temple of Ezekiel is as much symbolic as it is uh, concrete. There are a lot of people who think, and, and, and the question now I'm going to ask is, what does this river mean? What does the temple mean? What does the river mean? And a lot of people think that this temple or this river is a, is a prophecy of some future event that, and, th- and there are plenty of Latter-day Saints who, who think this as well. And it may even be doctrine. I've seen a lot of uh, very authoritative sources talk about uh, a river flowing from the temple in the New Jerusalem and healing the Dead Sea, etc. And, and that may well be true. But um, I guess my point is, there is no common agreement among scriptural scholars as to exactly what this river of Ezekiel means. So we get to think about it. This is what I would call a very good question. What is this, what is this stream emerging from the temple of Ezekiel? And one answer is, and it's a good answer, that it's a prophecy about um, a genuine stream that will one day emerge from the temple in Jerusalem when it's rebuilt when, uh, after the time of the second coming. Okay, fine. However... Um, judging by the fact that everything in, not only in this vision, but in most of, most, most of the things that Ezekiel has communicated in his visions has been symbolic, uh, it would be silly for us to assume that there are no symbols in this vision as well. And, okay, so it's, it's pretty obvious that a river flowing in the desert country of ancient Israel represents a source of blessings. 
So the real question is what blessings are flowing from the temple and why do those blessings get deeper the, uh, the longer they flow, right? So, and this is a question with several answers. We can answer this question all day long. And I, and I want to leave it with you no matter what, uh, no matter what we discuss after this, I want you to think about once this podcast is over, I want you to think about what this river might mean to you because that's really the question of Ezekiel 47. So here's this stream flowing out from the temple. And the first time I walk across it, wow, it's just up to my ankles. It's not much of a stream at all. It's not very important for watering the land. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't do much for me. Then it's up to my knees and I start thinking, wow, I could get lost in this river. It might sweep me away. And uh, then it's up to my waist. And I have to maybe, you know, to be safe, I might have to have a rope going across. And then finally, I have to swim. In other words, the blessings are so much that they overwhelm me by the time God is done releasing this river. What concrete blessings, what are the modern day fulfillments of this blessing? Well, we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about that a little bit. But from now on, these are just my interpretations of what those blessings might be. So to, to confine your interpretation to one specific thing, I think is a mistake. I think what God was trying to communicate through Ezekiel to the Israelites in Babylon is something that might be different from what he's trying to communicate to us. He might have been trying to send a different message to the Jews of Jesus's time. And all of them are true. All of them are blessings of God's temple. And we already know at its heart, those blessings are that we are able to walk back from the life we live now. And in fact, from the life we live after we're dead, from hell itself, we're able to walk back from there all the way undoing the fall back into God's presence, into his perfection, because he was willing to pursue us because of the process that is symbolized in the temple, because of the reality of the salvation of Jesus Christ. So no matter what interpretation you choose to put on this stream, that is the reality behind it. So let's now let's spend some time talking about, number one, what, what are some fun interpretations and some things that really make sense for us uh, about what this this river might mean. And then let's talk about what some other prophets have said about it, some some scriptures that we can find about it. Now, interestingly enough, this, this chapter, it feels like an obscure chapter in Ezekiel, chapter 47. But in fact, there was a talk, and it wasn't in general conference. It was given, at, I believe it was given at Roots Tech, which is a conference that has to do with, it's just all about genealogy. And it does have a fair amount. There are presentations at the conference that have to do with uh, Latter-day Saint doctrine. So this is Elder Renland and his family at Roots Tech, I think, talking about the, the meaning of this, this river in the ancient temple of Ezekiel. Ezekiel sees a river that increases as it flows from the house. The water that's moving forth from the temple represents blessings which flow from the temples to heal families and give them life. The growth of the river is similar to the exponential growth of our family through the generations. The blessings of the temple are available to everything and everyone. And what blessings? Everything shall live whither the river cometh. Brothers and sisters, I promise you protection for you and your family as you take this challenge to find as many names to take to the temple as ordinances you perform in the temple. 
and teach others to do the same. And if you accept this challenge, blessings will begin to flow to you and your family, like the power of the river spoken of by Ezekiel. And the river will grow as you continue to perform this work and teach others to do the same. You'll find not only protection from the temptation and ills of this world, but you'll also find personal power, power to change, power to repent, power to learn, power to be sanctified, and power to turn the hearts of your family together and heal that which needs healing. So it seems pretty significant that Elder Rundland is promising not only will we have increased spirituality in our lives as we visit the temple, but every blessing that we stand in need of. So he talked about healing. He talked about the power to turn the hearts of those towards uh, of those in our families towards the gospel. Uh, he talked about anything that power to repent, personal power, but he also talked about extending the blessings to to, to our ancestors. That if we were to take our own names to the temple, as many names as we perform ordinances in the temple, and teach someone else to do the same thing, then he gave us pretty amazing promises there. I encourage you to look up that. It's called, And the River Will Grow. He referred to something in that lesson that we didn't talk about yet, which is this river flows down into the, into the valley of the Dead Sea and then heals those waters. So if you don't know what the Dead Sea is, it is the saltiest body of water on earth, and it is also the lowest place on earth. The Dead Sea, uh, several years ago, the last time I learned the figures around this, was 1,300 feet, the top of the Dead Sea, 1,300 feet below sea level. And the bottom of the Dead Sea, another 1,300 feet below that. Now, to me, this summoned forth some of the imagery that we talked about when we discussed Jonah. This fish that swallowed Jonah descended with him into the depths of the sea, which literally meant hell to the, to the ancient Israelites. Uh, the depths of the sea were as low as you could go, as far from the mountain of the Lord's house as you could get. And God is saying through this imagery, he's saying this blessing that flows from God's house, not only does it bring life to the land that it flows by, but it, it turns this salty Dead Sea where no fish could live. The, the Dead Sea is so salty that if you try to swim in it, you can't even get your whole body underneath it. You float on top. You can read the paper. You've probably seen pictures of people reclining in the Dead Sea like an, in, in an easy chair, and they have a paper spread out in front of them because it, it's, they're so buoyant because salt water is heavier than fresh water. And the, the Dead Sea, as salty as it is, will be healed to the point where there will be fish living in it, and there will be people, there will be trees alongside it. So the, the land will be healed. Hell itself will be transformed. That's the image behind the, this river coming out of the issuing forth from the doors of the house of the Lord. Now, I want to give you some scriptural references that if you choose, you can use to answer this question for yourself. What does this river mean to me? What has God promised that has to do with the river in the past? So there are a ton of scriptures in the Old Testament, scriptures that, that you and I have already discussed together. Uh, that that point towards meanings for what this what this river issuing from the temple might mean. Remember, the Jews always had it in their mind uh, what Moses taught them in Deuteronomy chapter thirty. He he prophesied that they would one day stray from his commandments and be exiled from the the land, the promised land they were about to walk into. And so he said, 
I'm going to scatter you, but then one day you'll return, and in that day you'll obey. I'm going to change your hearts. And then the this the same line of discourse was taken up again centuries later when the prophets start to t- started to talk about the exile. They As soon as they would talk about the exile, then they would say, and one day I, God, am going to do a new thing among you. I'm going to change your hearts. So in, in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, he said, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to put my law on your inward parts. I'm going to write the law on your hearts. So instead of writing the law on these stone tables, I'm going to write it on your hearts. And you and nobody will teach each other who God is anymore because everybody is going to know. The knowledge of God will be universal. And this sounds to me very much like what Paul was trying to communicate when he said, you all collectively are the temple. That's Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Uh, in Joel chapter 3, well, the first thing that Joel says, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And similar to what Jeremiah is saying, um, Joel says, everyone will prophesy. And then the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 18, a spring will issue from the Lord's house. Now, this uh, this spring is symbolized by a lot of different things. God has said many times in the scriptures, I will rain down my spirit upon you. Um, Amos in 524 said, let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Hosea 14 Verses 4 and 5, I will hear, heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. I will be as the dew unto Israel. So water is constantly a blessing, and God has, is constantly likening his attentions to the waters that he sends. Ezekiel himself, just before chapter 47, he, if you remember, he talks in, in uh, chapter 36 about giving the Israelites a new heart. Just, just like Jeremiah did, he said... Um, I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit I'm going to put within you. I'm going to take your stony heart out, and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. And he said that in eleven, chapter 11, and again in chapter 36. And then in chapter 37, we see this image of dry bones being brought back to life, being stood up, and then flesh being put on them. The, the, Israel, the dead Israelites, this nation of dead Israelites, returned from hell and then become a mighty army in the service of the Almighty. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, the earth will be as full of knowledge of Yahweh as the sea is full of water. So the, we've seen the water likened to the spirit. We've seen it likened to the knowledge of God. We've seen it likened to justice and righteousness. And in Zechariah, we read a support for a literal stream flowing from the temple in Jerusalem. In chapter 14, the final chapter in Zechariah, he talks about, in in verse 8, he talks about a river from the temple. But in chapter 9, this is the same chapter, by the way, in which uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus is is foretold. And Jesus specifically uh, found an animal to ride in on because of what Zechariah wrote to to fulfill this very prophecy. And uh, elsewhere in the chapter, chapter 9, verse 11, Zechariah says, um, or God says through Zechariah, I will free you from the waterless pit of exile. So, the, a place without water is also a hellish place. Perhaps the most potent imagery is in Psalm 42. The psalmist here writes, As a deer longs for cool water, I long for God. I thirst for you, the living God. When can I worship in your presence? My heart breaks when I remember being in the temple. And so this is likening, number one, it's likening worshiping God 
and being close to God to having water when you're thirsty. And then it is explicitly talked about as being in the temple. That's Psalm number 42. Well, we've talked about a lot of different scriptures today. And we've also had been taught by a modern prophet of the blessings that flow from the temple. And these blessings flow naturally. They increase without, this. the stream increases in size without having tributaries flow into it. That's meant to, to me, that's meant to illustrate the point that these blessings flow so naturally that you don't see them coming. And like the ancient temple, our modern temple is constructed, even though there are so many superficial differences, it's constructed on the same idea. It represents a journey from the way we live now to the way we once lived in God's presence and the way we can live again. It's God's abiding love and his pursuit, his refusal to give up on us. And as he's prophesied so many times, I will change their hearts. The temple is a symbol of his mechanism for doing that. And it is a symbol of Jesus Christ, who is the power through which that will happen. And as Elder Rendlin says, if we will attend the temple, if we will take advantage of its blessings, if we'll take them seriously, if we will swim in this river, then we'll have all kinds of power, every blessing, As he said, every kind of blessing will be ours. We'll have the power to heal. We'll have the power to repent. We'll gain personal power to feel the Spirit. And of course, we'll gain the blessings of temples for ourselves and for our ancestors. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.